Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we come before you, we do recognize your holiness and our inability to be holy apart from the blood covering of Jesus Christ and the empowering of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you have called us to be holy. And I pray, Lord, that we would take that calling seriously, that we would strive for holiness and righteousness in our life. I pray as we open up your word this morning in Romans that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me in your Bible to Romans 14 as we start a new chapter this morning. And as we begin that new chapter, I want to bring up again a simplistic division of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And as I've mentioned before, Romans 1 through 11 is the presentation of the gospel, how one becomes saved and the need for salvation. And starting in chapter 12, Paul begins giving instructions on how the believer should live out their Christian life. Because this is what makes a Christian. Christianity isn't just a theoretical exercise. It is the action in the life of the believer due to the indwelling of the Spirit. And as we start chapter 14, it's so very important for us to remember how Paul closed out 13. And as a brief aside, chapters and verses are a human invention. And thank God we have them because we'd be looking for Scripture forever. But Paul didn't pen chapter 14 or chapter 12. But man divided these into subject matter, but sometimes you can lose the meaning of what the writer is conveying when you think, well, that chapter's closed and I'm on to a new chapter. And when you look at the last verses in 13, Romans 13, 12, Paul wrote, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us Cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We could simply say that Paul is telling the believers at the Church of Rome to pursue holiness. We as believers are to pursue holiness. And in fact, 
as you think about how he opened up this section of Romans, starting in chapter 12, he began with, I beseech you therefore. In other words, 1 through 11 was about salvation. And then he says, I beseech you therefore, or because of what he had previously wrote. Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out that the opening of chapter 12 guides the remaining chapters of the letter. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, that you present yourself holy. This is the overall theme of the remainder of the book. And so my point is, is that when Paul starts 12, and as he progresses, and as we find ourselves this morning in Romans 14, he is emphasizing holiness. And you'll see why I stress that as we progress. So Romans 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. We'll be lucky if we get out of 1. But 1 through 4, it says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received them. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So when you think about verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And as you think about what Paul has written in 12 and 13, this begs the question, Is Paul telling us to be soft on sin? And the short answer of that is no. From a rational perspective, it would be odd to lay out a case for holiness in 12 through 13 and then move to take a stance of acquiescence, of winking at someone's sin. And from a theological perspective, it doesn't make sense. After all, in Matthew 18, Christ gave the church power to discipline its members. Matthew 18, verse 15, Christ said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So clearly Christ is giving the church 
the power to discipline members. And if you were to discipline a member, you're taking a stance on sin. So what is the message that Paul is conveying? And as we look at verse 1 of chapter 14, it's very important. It's very important that we understand that Paul is not saying those who are weak in faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones brought this up in his sermon on this particular verse. It's not weak in faith. It's weak in the faith. There's a difference between saying weak in faith and weak in the faith. And Doug Moo, who wrote the great commentary on Romans, concurs with this as you look at the original language. And it's important to make note of the difference because if you were saying that we were to be forgiving or lax or winking at somebody who is weak in faith, it means someone who is struggling in Christianity in general with just sin. We have a fancy theological word for that, right? It's antinomianism. It means that you can believe in Christ, but you don't have to pursue the law. That God doesn't require holy behavior on your part. And Paul here is not promoting antinomianism. He's not promoting that we can go out and live a life of sin and be okay with Christianity and be okay with God. That's not what he's telling us to do. He's not telling us as believers to be okay with antinomianism. It makes sense because in Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. In other words, under grace, I don't have a license to sin. Under grace, I have the power over sin. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Through Christ, there's the victory over sin. So this isn't what Paul is dealing with here in the beginning of 14. Paul is dealing with doctrinal issues, weak In the faith. Weak in the faith. In other words, weak in doctrinal issues. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it matters of indifference. We're going to look at that further as we progress in the following verses. But these are doctrinal issues. So let's look at 14.1 again. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Someone who's weak in doctrinal issues but not to disputes over doubtful things. Now, let's think about this phrase again in more detail. Weak in the faith. Paul, by making this very statement, weak in the faith, is implying that there are weak Christians and strong Christians in a doctrinal perspective. On a doctrinal basis, there's weak Christians 
And they're strong Christians. Now, we live in a world currently that no one wants to make any type of judgment call whatsoever, right? I mean, we live in a world where every child gets a trophy. We live in a world that honors programs are being disbanded in junior highs and high schools because we might make a child feel bad about themselves, right? If they're not in the honors program. We live in a world where merit and judgment is on its way out. Uniformity is in. But the world really doesn't work that way, does it? The world works in the recognition of strong and weak. I mean, it amazes me that we live in a world that will say you can't pass judgment or you can't make an assessment of one's skills, but yet we're sports nuts in this country, right? So if you take the morality view of the society and say, well, you can't pass judgment, everybody gets a trophy, everybody has whatever they want, it's all equal playing field, I should be able to go play for the Dallas Cowboys. But you would not want to see me play for the Dallas. It might be comical, right? All throughout life, there's weak and strong. And here, Paul is saying, by implication, that there are strong Christians from a doctrinal standpoint, and there are weak Christians for from a doctrinal standpoint. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.10, which is another way to prove this idea of strong Christians and weak Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We've preached on this before. You don't hear a lot of it in modern churches anymore. But when we get to heaven, there are rewards. There are rewards. And unlike our society that we live in right now, where every child gets a trophy, in heaven there it will be a distribution of rewards. Some will get rewards and some will get in being a little toasty. Now, if there are the distribution of rewards in heaven, doesn't that support the case for weak and strong? It does, doesn't it? After all, it says that he is judge, Lord over all. The implication is that there's a judgment call, right? That it's not pass-fail. Heaven's not pass-fail. Our beliefs aren't pass-fail. So we've established the idea that there are weak and strong Christians. We've established the idea that it's not about sinfulness, that we're not to put up with a brother or sister or wink or be soft on a brother or sister who is weak in faith. That's not what he's talking about. It's that we are to be unified as believers, both strong and weak Christians, 
in a doctrinal view. Now, it's going to take me several Sundays. So if you're going, well, pastor, what about this or what about that? It's going to take me several Sundays to unroll this. So if he's not talking about sin, and he's talking about doctrine, I think it's important to recognize how one is strong and one is weak. And there's several different views or thoughts on that. In one way, one is strong because one has been given a gift of teaching. And through that gift, whether one's a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a Bible study, they've been given the gift of that. And therefore, from a doctrinal standpoint, they're strong. And it's important to realize that that is a gift that is not merit-based. Somebody said, well, I've got the gift of teaching. Well, you got the gift of teaching not because out of merit. You got the gift of teaching through the grace of God. So it's a gift of grace. So there are some who have received that. It's through a gift from a doctrinal standpoint that they are strong. And you think about this. If the church is built upon the recognition of mature believers in the appointment of teachers and elders, and in fact, in my experience, it is one of the absolute worst things to do to appoint a new believer to a position of teaching, it puts incredible stress on them. And in fact, I've seen those people come under tremendous trial. The church should be, and I stress should be, built upon us coming together and the mature believer giving guidance to the weaker Believer, Just because you're weak at this particular moment doesn't mean that this is where you stay. The idea of sanctification is, is that you progress, right? You're not static. And so the church should be, should be designed for all of us to come together, age, and maturity levels all mixed together, and the church is strengthened through developing disciples in that way. Unfortunately, in the modern church, the modern church has dismantled that. And what do we do? A church bigger than ours, what would happen is, is all the old people would get in one group and then all the middle-aged people get in another group and then you got young married and then you go below young married then you have college and career and then from college and career you got high school and then you got junior high and then you got elementary school and you divide all of these up and my gripe always about this especially in the youth 
has been, tell me what words of wisdom one 16-year-old has ever imparted to another. Think about it in young married. I've seen young married classes being led by young married people. Well, which would you rather have in a class? Someone who is young married teaching another young married that's going through this trying to work through their life at the same time, encountering the same thing? Or would it be better, would it be better to have an older person or an older couple who has navigated all of the struggles of life to be teaching that class and saying, these are the things that you're going to walk through as a married person and this is what we did and this is what we learned from the experience. And so you have... Mature, guiding the immature. See, there should be a recognition that we as individual believers should take an assessment, right? A self-assessment. Where am I at? Where am I at in my spiritual life? And that should be a candid assessment. And that's one thing about coming together to, to church and Bible study is that you get an accurate assessment, self-assessment. This is where I'm at. This is where I need to be. And so that's one way in which they're strong and weak. Growing up as a Baptist, I remember at one particular point in time, everybody got on this kick of priesthood of the believer, priesthood of the believer. And that was the most mistaught doctrine. And basically, priests of the believers, you don't need a priest. You can go and you can petition God. That ended up being totally taken out of context. And basically used as, you can't tell me what to do. I am my own priest. Well, this isn't cafeteria doctrine. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, there's only one truth. So if you have two people claiming that they both know the truth because they're a priesthood of the believer, and those truths are contrary to one another, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. It's just as simple as that. So there's weak and strong. And one way is, is the appointment of gifts. The other way is through longevity. And let me stress here this word should. An older Christian should be stronger in the faith than a younger Christian. Again, should. But in my ministry, sometimes that's not been my experience. That sometimes you'll find an older Christian by years, and I'm not referring to age here, I'm talking about from the moment that someone came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that I've found younger Christians sometimes have more maturity than older Christians, which begs the question, can weakness Can weakness be a choice? And that answer is yes. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in 1. 
Paul said this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? Paul was saying, I would like to speak to you in a spiritual matter, but you're a babe. You're a babe. Turn with me to Hebrews 5, verse 12. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You ought to be a teacher. Now, thank God this is not a static position. Being weak and strong. If you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, I don't label myself as a strong Christian from a doctrinal perspective. And let me say, and as we progress, we're not talking about doctrine without application. What we're going to learn in the next couple of Sundays is the application of doctrine and how one lives their life. You don't have to be stuck in a position of weakness. In fact, it would not be scripturally correct for you to stay in a position of weakness. But my point here is, is that we do have control. It's where our free will comes in. If you believe in Reformed theology, you believe that God picks people. And some people say, well, you don't believe in free will. Oh, no, I do believe in free will. And where free will happens is that you and I, after the shackles of sin have been broken through the power of Jesus Christ, you and I then have a free will a free will to pursue God. That's where our freedom comes from. That's where the free will is. So you and I have a freedom to walk with God in weakness or strength. Which leads me to my final verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, lay aside all malice... All deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes 
desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, if you are a believer, if you are a believer, how you progress from milk to solid food, how you progress from milk to solid food is through the word of God. And the more you open that word, And the more that you participate in Bible study, we have three hours a week where you can come and you can participate in knowing and learning the Word of God. And you will not progress unless you spend time with the Word of God. And you have comfort and edification with your brothers and sisters in Christ and encouragement as you learn the Word of God together, and you progress from being weak to strong. It's through the Word. People say, well, I just really don't understand doctrine. In a lot of ways, that's a choice. That's a choice. The Bible says that through the power of Christ, the veil's been lifted, right? You and I are able to read the Word of God, and we're able to understand it, and we have the indwelling of the Spirit who teaches us. And it's so very important that we're strong. But let me throw something else in as we close. A church cannot grow unless a church is strong because you have to be able to disciple the weak. If we want to grow... It comes with the recognition that we should have, we should have both weak and strong in the church. People say, oh my goodness, I'm weak. Well, that's bad. I shouldn't be in church. No, no. No, the purpose of you coming to church is is that you progress from weak to strong. That's the purpose. That, That the body of Christ is developed in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you do want, you don't want to congregate. If, if you just had a congregation of strong, you're not being used in your talents, right? If you have a congregation of weak and strong, it means that we are discipling, what we're supposed to do, we're discipling those that are weak. So there is weak and strong and the desire of the weak, the desire of the weak should be to progress to be known as strong, strong in the Lord, strong in doctrine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for our salvation that weak and strong, we both stand justified through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we both stand knowing that we'll stand before you in your presence in heaven, accepted in the beloved. And I pray, Lord, that we would desire to be strong in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. 
If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.